Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. Welcome to Liberty Church Mainline. If you are visiting, I do uh, hope that you take the opportunity to join us, either staying for the lunch or just saying hi after the service. Uh, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor here, and I want to, again, extend a welcome to you. Uh, It's an exciting day in the life of our church. Uh, We've been studying the topic of renewal. One of the ways that God renews his people is through uh, people who he calls to serve his church. And so today we are looking at Uh, a passage that gives us a vision for service and leadership. So I invite you to follow along as I read from God's word. This is the book of Acts chapter 20. Uh, It is the inspired word of God, the living word of the living God. So may he uh, give us his spirit to understand and hear it. From Miletus, Paul sent a message to Ephesus asking the elders of the church to meet him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus." And now as a captive to the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace." And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am not responsible for the blood of any of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God that he obtained with the blood of his own son. I know that after I have gone, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Some even from your own group will come distorting the truth in order to entice the disciples to follow them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to warn everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the message of his grace, a message that is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing. You know for yourselves that I worked with my own hands to support myself and my companions. In all this, I have given you an example that by such work we must support the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, for he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I invite you to join with me in prayer as we reflect on this passage. Our Lord and our God, we do thank you for the person of Jesus who reveals in his service to us that you have a heart 
that believes it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we pray now that you would give us grace as we reflect on this word and that you'd speak to the heart of each person here today so that they might hear what would be especially helpful, encouraging, beneficial to them wherever they might find themselves. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You don't have to look very far to find lots of examples of bad leaders, and that can be in the uh, wider world or within church and ministries. Uh, There was, in fact, a new documentary that dropped just recently, and I'm seeing on Twitter lots of people react to very scarring experiences of misused authority in their lives that was sort of covered with a cloak of religious uh, authority and endorsement. In our passage this morning, Paul gives us a very different vision of leadership and of service. He is approaching the final years of his life and ministry. He's bracing for a hostile reception in the city of Jerusalem that eventually leads to him spending much, if not all, of the remaining years of his life as a prisoner under, uh, in custody or under house arrest. But here, Luke, the author of Acts, allows us to eavesdrop on Paul's parting words to the leaders of the church in the city of Ephesus. Because Paul's charge to these leaders is a template and a pattern for the leaders of any Christian church. So this morning, the direct audience for our sermon is our congregation's leaders, including those who later in the service will be ordained and installed as new officers. But Paul's words aren't just for recognized leaders. The most important qualification for leadership in the church is spiritual maturity, And every follower of Jesus should aspire to the vision of spiritual maturity that we receive from Paul, the scriptures, and Jesus himself. So indirectly, Paul's charge is for all of us together as we strive to be a faithful community that, as we say, strives to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus here on the main line in our time and place. At the heart of Paul's parting words is a vision of a well-led church through well-lived lives. A well-led church flowing from well-lived lives. So first, a well-led church. In verse 28, Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Today, spiritual leaders are often viewed with a fair degree of skepticism or suspicion, and often that's been uh, sadly earned, and rightly so, in Paul's opinion also. There are plenty of unscrupulous religious leaders out there, and Paul has a word for them. He calls them wolves. This is not a term of endearment. Uh, The Bible often describes the church as God's flock. God says that we are like sheep, and we think of sheep as cute and cuddly and soft. Uh, But sheep don't enjoy a lot of natural defenses. They aren't particularly smart. They are prone to wander off by themselves where they're even more vulnerable, kind of like we just sung about ourselves. And that's what God says we're like. It's not intended to be a very flattering comparison. And the thing with wolves is that you might know this, They eat sheep, okay? The contrast is pretty straightforward between the vision that's going to be given in a minute of 
leaders of, that are often described in the Bible as shepherds, shepherds think that they exist to provide for the sheep, whereas wolves think sheep exist to provide for them, right? Two very different visions of leadership here. Uh, and there are a variety of waves, ways that wolves can devour sheep. Many of these continue to come up in our headlines, in our documentaries, in podcast series. They may use sheep for financial gain or for sexual exploitation to build their own personal brand or platform or ego. And sometimes that's built on overly simplistic teaching and visions, which uh, may be genuine be genuinely believed by some of those teachers and yet are genuinely also quite harmful. So instead, God provides leaders for his church. In verse 28, uh, he, he calls these elders also overseers. And the word is the source for our English word, bishop. But here, Paul actually equates the elders of verse 17 with the overseers of verse 28. One term refers to maturity, and the other term refers to task. And other places in the New Testament highlight that uh, the office of deacon is also important to supplement the work of Christian leadership. Uh, and deacon is simply the Greek word for servant. People who work together with, who serve together with pastors and elders to serve the local church and a local community. But leaders, as Paul says, need to watch themselves. Because wolves don't just come from outside, they also come, as Paul says in verse 30, from your own group, from among you. God says we're all sheep, but there's also a little bit of wolf in every one of us too. Paul tells elders to watch over the flock and themselves, and as he approaches the end of his life and ministry, he gives a vision to, for us to strive for as we seek to be mature followers of Jesus or mature leaders a picture of a well-lived life. And Paul's life is actually a really surprising example to use of a well-lived life for us in many ways because it was a life that was marked by truth and tears and toil. And if you're skeptical of so-called Christian leaders, perhaps because you have been manipulated or mistreated in the past... Hopefully, this gives a very different picture of what, than what you experienced, this picture of truth, tears, and toil. Paul twice repeats, verses 20 and 27, that he didn't shrink back from telling the truth, or verse 27, the whole counsel of God. This is a difficult calling because the gospel always offends and it offended different people in different ways. Modern day example would be that if you go to a university campus or an urban city center and you preach about God's forgiveness, uh, the people listening will often say, oh, that's lovely. I have no problems with that. That is beautiful. But then if you go on to talk about some of the ways we're supposed to respond to God's forgiveness in changed lifestyles, which may involve self-restraint of our sexual desires or of our material desires, the same people will say, that's so restrictive. How can you expect me to deny my natural desires or to, enjoy, to deny the enjoyment of uh, aspects of the world? 
But if you go halfway around the world into, say, a traditional Muslim context, you'll get the exact opposite reaction. You describe God's forgiveness, and they'll say, what are you talking about? You can't let people get off light like that. That's ridiculous. And then you talk about a, a sexual ethic or material ethic, and they'll likely say, well, of course, we all know that. The gospel offends us in different ways, in different cultures, because the gospel isn't the product of any one single culture. It's not one culture that's trying to colonize uh, the world. The gospel comes from outside of our cultures and challenges different idolatries in different ways. And that means that it will always be, it will always take courage to represent the whole counsel of God and to tell people the truth. But we do that because God tells us that it's for the good of the people around us. Paul uh, gets at this by describing himself as a watchman when he says in verse 26, I am not responsible for the blood of any of you. Okay, that's is that something that you say uh, in your everyday conversation? It seems a little strange. Uh, the image actually comes from the prophet Ezekiel. And uh, the image is of a watchman. If an army attacks a city and the watchman raises no alarm because he was negligent in his duty, he wasn't uh, awake, uh, he is guilty for the lives of those who die in the attack. But if he raises the alarm but the citizens don't take any precautions, then whatever happens falls on them. It's their responsibility for their own fate. And the Bible tells us that we are a besieged city. Our folly, our sin, our self-centeredness, our addictive behaviors, our self-medicating, our self-righteousness, all will be our downfall if we take no precautions. But God has provided in Jesus a strong fortress in whom we can find shelter from the worst consequences of our evil and God's just anger against it. But Paul uh, didn't just come hammering them with truth. He wasn't just an arrogant jerk. When he said hard things, he did so with compassion and with empathy. His ministry was marked with tears. See, in verse 19, he says, I served the Lord with all humility and with tears. Verse 31, for three years I warned everyone night and day with tears. Paul was a sympathetic pastor who lived among the Ephesians. This is uh, especially important and countercultural today. A few years ago I saw a New York Times headline that said, human contact is now a luxury good. Human contact is now a luxury good. Just think about your daily routine and of your interactions. I don't remember the last time I talked to a bank teller, right? The only time I need the cashier at Giant is if I want to buy NyQuil and they have to check my card, right? Uh, think of all the ways our world is now automated so that we don't actually have to interact with people. And yet we know the research says this is demonstrably bad for us. And there's something irreducibly relational and interpersonal about Christian faith. Because we live out the fact that God has come to live with us. 
it's good for us not only to seek out a church that we can be part of in public worship, but also to find a smaller group of friends within that church or within our neighborhood who can really know us, who can pray with us, who can celebrate our victories with us, and who will weep with us over our heartaches. So truth and tears together. And Paul's life was also marked by toil. Despite being an apostle of Jesus, Paul often worked with his own hands. Sometimes he would uh, receive financial support for his ministry, but other times he would forego it rather than burden a fledgling church or risk the charge that he was just in it for the money. And Paul worked also to provide an example of providing for others. As he says in verse 35, we must support the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Interesting little note. That's actually not preserved in the Gospels, but this would have been written, uh, this conversation would have happened much earlier than the writing of the Gospels. And um, we know that this was a well-received saying of Jesus, well-attested. Paul's ministry of truth was matched with a ministry of care for the weak and vulnerable because both together reflect the heart of Jesus. Truth, tears, and toils. A vision of a well-lived life. But how do we possibly do this, right? Because we know on one hand there are plenty of self-serving religious leaders whose lives look nothing like this, but history is also littered with many examples of people who start out with every good intention and then are lured into compromise and self-indulgence. So how did Paul do this? How did he finish his race well? The key to understanding Paul's motivation and energy comes from the attitude of life that he expresses in verse 24. I do not account my life of any value to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel and the grace of God. That is a hard attitude to have because to be honest, when we think of a well-lived life, we would add a lot of other things into that besides truth and tears and toil, probably, right? We would have lots of other marks, But as uh, Paul says in reflecting the attitude of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, as Jesus said, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It is easy for us to be caught up in the struggle of, I hear what God calls me to do, or what people say God calls me to do. But that means giving something up that I don't want to give up. It means sacrificing something that I don't want to sacrifice. And often when we have the choice of faithfulness without our so-called heart's desire, or unfaithfulness with our heart's desire, we struggle, right? But God says, trust me that I know you and your heart and your heart's desires, and I know better than you what you think your heart needs. What is a well-lived life? You can have the most deprived and arduous and difficult life and for it to be utterly successful because the marker of success at the end of our life has almost nothing to do with anything that we accomplish or accumulate 
where you live or work or your kids go to college. Ultimately, the successful life is the one that on the other side of, of death, we stand before Jesus and he says to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. And if we hear that one day, we're not going to hear that and then say, yeah, but Jesus, what about that thing I didn't get? No, you're not going to be asking what about if you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, One of my favorite movies, Braveheart, uh, the queen is pleading when Wallace has been, William Wallace has been imprisoned, he's scheduled for execution, and she says, you will die, it will be awful. And it is awful, because it's a, um, uh, uh, I'm blank, Mel Gibson movie, it is awful. Um, (laughs) But William Wallace says, every man dies, not every man really lives. In Christ, we can really live. However difficult it may be, life with Jesus is the real life. The example that Paul sets can seem daunting, and the threats that we can face as a church can often seem discouraging, especially when we think about not only the wolfy people that are out there, but the wolfy nature that we have in each one of us. What hope is there for us to rely on? Paul concludes in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the message of his grace. We don't rely on ourselves. Who is it that makes elders and deacons? It's not them. It's not us. It's God. Whose church is this? Whose church is any church? It's not the Ephesians. It's not ours. It's God's. How was it obtained, as Paul says, or we could translate it, how was the church bought and paid for with the blood of Jesus? How could Paul live a life of truth and tears and toil? How can we live a life like that? Because Jesus, God the Son, lived a life of truth and tears and toil for you and for me. And when we stumble, when we could say the spiritual full moon is out and the wolf in each of us resurfaces, when we don't live a well-lived life according to this vision, in those moments we look again to Jesus who did for us. The Father has gathered his people at the cost of the blood of his Son and he is not going to lose us if he has done that already. As Paul would write later, from prison to this church, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of your works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the message of his grace. This is our hope and our confidence. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank and praise you for this vision. We thank you for this passage, and we pray that we would rest in the person of Jesus and that the life and the power and the hope that's found in him would equip us all to lives of service and sacrifice. And we pray that by your spirit working in us, 
and doing in us what we cannot do ourselves, we would, by your grace, stand before you one day and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.